Hello, everybody. Welcome to Cinescope Today, episode six. Uh, we don't have Seth with us this time. Um, he's still around, but he's just not here for this episode. But we do have Blaine Grimes back after talking about Looper on the main podcast. We decided we would continue the Ryan Johnson <laughs> nerding out <laughs> on this one. So we're here to talk about Knives Out tonight. How are you doing, Blaine? I'm doing well. I'm very excited for this conversation. I haven't really had a ton of chance to talk about this movie since seeing it. And I've been dying to. So I'm I'm very excited to do this. I am too. I, w- I was sitting down writing my notes uh, in the... 30, 45 minutes or so before I sat down to record. And I was like, okay, I've got some general thoughts, but I'm really excited to see what comes out or like maybe something I realize or you realize and we just like geek out about it (laughs) in the course of discussion. So I'm excited for that kind of stuff to reveal itself. For sure. Well, let's just go ahead and jump in. We, We did introductory stuff on the main episode of the podcast. So let's just talk Knives Out. It released on November 27th of 2019, so it's been a couple of months almost at this point. It was directed by Ryan Johnson, once again going over his stuff, Brick, The Blothers Bloom, Looper, Star Wars Last Jedi, written by Johnson and composed by Johnson, Nathan Johnson, his cousin, uh, who composed for Brick, The Brothers Bloom, uh, The Day I Saw Your Heart, Looper, Don John, Young Ones, and Kill the Messenger. And what a cast in this movie. We've got Ana de Armas, Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, Catherine Langford, Jaden Martell, and Christopher Plummer. So lots of big names in this movie. And as we always start off with on Cinescope Today, we talk spoiler free so that hopefully we can encourage you to go see the movie in the theater before it's out. So uh, do you know what the buildup for this movie or could you describe the buildup for this movie in your mind Blaine and whether it met or didn't or whatever your expectations were I was very excited when this movie when I when I learned that this movie was coming out um, because it's a it's a Ryan Johnson movie and we kind of talked about that on on our our last episode Mm -hmm. about how I become a big Ryan Johnson fan and so I was excited that we were getting another Ryan Johnson film uh, that was an original, uh, completely original pro- IP that he, you know, wrote um, and was directing again. But then I was even more excited when I learned that it was going to be a a whodunit, because I am, I, I am an old person in many ways. <laughs> because usually about one, once a year, actually usually about this time of year, starting around the Christmas break, um, going through early winter. I go through a phase in my reading where I just read mysteries mm-hmm. um, because I find them enjoyable. It's kind of a time of year where, you know, you get a break from work and you can kind of, you just want to relax. You don't want to have to think about anything too hard. And then you come back to work and you, it takes a while to get back in the swing of things. So I, I usually find that to be a good time that I, that I just want to read some mysteries, um, some good cozy reads. And so, I, so I just really like whodunits uh, and I, I like whodunits in, in film as well, you know, going all the way back to clue and, sleuth and on and on and on even even british tv series and whatnot so uh i was very excited that it was going to be a whodunit and a ryan johnson whodunit because as we talked a little bit about when we talked about looper johnson always puts his own unique twist on genres that he's playing Mm -hmm. in and so i was very excited to see that we caught we saw kind of a a noir style detective movie in brick and so we were going to get to see something that's a bit more playful here in this and i was very much looking forward to that and i will say so my expectations were high but the expectations were just i want to be entertained and delighted by this movie not i was looking for any specific thing and so this movie kind of exceeded met and exceeded all expectations and being just incredibly 
incredibly delightful. It was something I went to see with my wife, went back, and uh, my grandmother's also a big mystery fan, and I, I think that's where I got my love of it. And so I took her to see it, and she loved it. And both times in the theater, seeing it with family and also just with a, a packed audience was an absolute blast. Yeah, my expectations are likewise very high just by virtue of this being a Ryan Johnson movie. We talked about Looper making me fall in love with Ryan Johnson's films. The Last Jedi certainly didn't disappoint, and it made my love for him and his work even deeper. And I'm also a big whodunit slash detective stories fan. The ones I've read the most, at least recently, are J.K. Rowling's series of detective books. I don't know if you've checked those out, but they're very good. Yeah. Um, And so Knives Out was high on my list. And it took me forever to finally take the time to go see it. I I just saw it earlier this week. But man, I had a freaking blast. Like, I think I've described it the same way every single time I say it. I had a freaking blast because that's I just had so much fun watching this in the theater. And because it's been two months almost since this has been out, you'd think that interest in it might have waned a little bit. If I went and saw it by myself, then I might have been one of the only two or three people in the theater but no this this screening that i went to was packed i had to scoot over a chair because i had sort of given myself a buffer seat from somebody who booked seats next to me and nope the other people came on the other on the other side so we were all sitting next to each other and there wasn't an empty seat i had so much fun the theater had so much fun and man the, the script is so smart in the way johnson continues to play with those genres and tropes because you know being fans of whodunits you expect the murder or whatever crime to happen at the beginning. You expect the detective to show up. You follow the detective finding out all these interesting things about the case, but still not knowing who it is. And then in like the end of the movie, the climax of the film, the detective says, I know who did it. And this is how, and we kind of get parts of that, but Ryan Johnson doesn't follow that formula exactly. And I love that it's it was so different. It kept me on the front of my chair the whole time. It kept my jaw open for much of the film. Man, it was so good. The twists and turns are so much fun. And just the way the narrative is put together, the way that it's structured is, I think, really smart and really unique. I was on the edge of my seat. And it was one of those, occasionally, I feel like I have experiences in theater where I will... Normally, it's a bad thing, I think, if I'm thinking about things outside of the movie while I'm watching a movie. Mm -hmm. But occasionally, something will happen where I will be thinking outside of the movie, but it's in the sense of, oh, I just kind of know through, you know, knowledge of seeing a bunch of movies and narrative structure that this movie is winding down, and I don't want that to happen. Uh Um, And that definitely happened um, my first time viewing this. It was just there was a point where I was like, oh, no, he's monologuing here at the (laughs) end. Like, it's almost over, and I desperately don't want this movie to be over because I'm having so much fun. And that's always a good thing. It was such a good thing. And the the cast is ace. I mean, Ana de Armas, especially in the lead. I don't know if I knew going in that she was lead. I, I generally try to avoid trailers with the only exception being trailers I see in front of other movies at the theater. And so I'd only seen a couple or maybe one trailer for this movie going into it. And so I, I didn't know except that it had an all-star cast who was going to be leading. So Ana de Armas being here is a standout, but also Christopher Plummer in his sort of limited uh, feature here. He's still great in his old age. What is he? 90 something at this point. Yeah. And I mean, Daniel Craig, he, he's a lot of fun too. He's got that Southern accent going on and he, he seems like a character who belongs in a film that's set in the fifties, but he's been dropped into the 21st century 
And I, I just had so much fun with the cast, too. I mean, Chris Evans has been talked about a lot as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we saw Daniel Craig kind of do an accent sim- somewhat similar to this in the uh, Logan Lucky, the Soderbergh film. But here, it's just, I mean, it's it was great there, but it's absolutely top-notch here. I could listen to it all day. Yeah, I mean, being an Office fan, I, I, I instantly went back to the episode where Andy puts on his Savannah accent, dripping oh, with yeah. molasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. I don't have much to say about it now, but Nathan Johnson also delivers another fantastic score. Yeah, we've got to talk about that before we're done, because it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a lot more orchestral than what we were talking about with Looper, where that one was very industrial. And this is almost like chamber orchestra, where you've got like a small group of strings, and it, it builds and builds in certain instances. But a lot of it's very quiet and subdued, but energetic. And so I, I really enjoyed that as well. Yeah, there's this... Actually, do we want to come back to the score later on when we're when we're doing spoilers? Yeah, we'll, we'll come back and talk a little bit more specifically later. Um, okay. Now, one more thing to talk about before we get out or into spoiler territory is the idea that there's a sequel potentially in the works. Um, and we can yeah. talk about this a little bit more in depth after we've talked about the contents of the film. But, you know, more detective stuff for Ryan Johnson with Daniel Craig starring and more Nathan Johnson score. I mean, sign me up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am absolutely on board. I could watch a ton of these movies as long as as long as, you know, Ryan Johnson actually has an interest in continuing to write them right. um, and is doing it from a, a place of love, which I think is the only way he would do it. So, right. What I'm hearing is that both of us really liked this movie and think that you should go see it in theaters ASAP while you still can. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's not a huge spectacle kind of movie that you would maybe a lot of people would normally say, Oh, I've got to see that in theaters or something like that. But I, I, I would implore you to please go see it in theaters if you can, because, and do it at a time, you know, like a weeknight or something like that, when you can be there with a lot of people, mm-hmm. because this is uh, a great movie to see with a crowd and hear other people laugh. And um, that was one of my great joys of seeing it the second time. You know, after I already knew the plot and everything, I was free to kind of occasionally just listen for people laughing and, <laughs> and enjoying that. Uh, and it's a great it's a great movie to see with a crowd or with family or whatever. So, yeah, go by all means, go see it in theaters. Yeah. My grandmother is a big mystery person, too. And so I, I'm actually thinking about maybe calling her up and saying, hey, do you want to go go see this with me? Because she yeah. expressed interest for sure. So that being said, the spoiler bell is being rung and we are moving on to talking about all the things in this movie. Uh, We'll go through our normal categories that we do on the main podcast. So starting off with the story, what what stands out to you about the story or maybe just the way it's structured, anything like that? The interesting thing here is when we get the the big revelation, the the flashback very early on in the film where we see Marta's character and what actually happened with Harlan Thrombey and that that scene not only is there, but it's played out at such great length Mm -hmm. um, and there's genuine... There's genuine emotion and there's genuine heart in that. We talked in our Looper episode about how Ryan Johnson, I was arguing that not only does Ryan Johnson interrogate the genres that he likes to work in Mm -hmm. very lovingly and and gently and playfully, but also he humanizes everything and gets to the heart of something. And so I was not either kind of expecting going in this movie, uh, Marta to be the center of all of this. And I'd, I'd watched the trailers, but I wasn't quite expecting her to play this central of a role. And I just love her character and getting to see her her friendship with Harlan made everything not only much more impactful but it also set up a great sort of suspense plot so like I I think I've heard Ryan Johnson before talk about 
the influences of Hitchcock on this film and other films as well. But like Hitchcock talks about the difference uh, or what suspense actually is. And suspense isn't just having a bomb go off in a room. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this movie, it might be like just revealing that, you know, what Marta did at the end or something like that. But suspense is actually showing the bomb and then showing people come in and sit at the table while there's a bomb ticking in the room. And right. so that's exactly what Johnson sets up here by, do, by having this flashback is from that point on, you know, we're worried about, you know, what's going to happen when, when Blanc finds out or does Blanc already know and how is that going to play out? What's going to happen with the family finds out um, and all of that. And so I really, I really like that flashback. I also think that flashback is interesting because it is revealed so early and because of the tropes of the genre and how the formula usually works, I had doubts that that was the entire story, you know, because in that initial flashback, we don't see him slit his throat. We just get the reason why he might have or the lead up to that. And it's not until a later flashback where we see that that Marta actually witnessed him kill himself. So I I had doubts in my mind whether, you know, okay, so Marta left at this point. Did somebody come in and actually slice his throat at this point? Or, you know, it just introduced doubt because it was such a a twist on the genre. And the the whole whodunit part of the film, the whodunit shifted because the whodunit was gone as soon as we knew it was Marta. So it wasn't who killed Harlan anymore. Then it was, okay, how does Marta escape suspicion? And then, okay, well, who hired Blanc? And so it, it shifted focus here and here and here into what you, was what it was making you puzzle over. And the explanation scene, the, the monologue from Blanc that is a trope of the genre did such a fantastic job of tying all of those questions and answers together. Yeah. <laughs> and part of that is is due to that the way the story is structured as well or just the way the story is written and and set up and conceived is one of the conceits is that Harlan Thrombey is a mystery is a famous mystery novelist. Right. And so I think we're kind of assuming I know both my wife and I were in, on our first, on when we first saw it that Harlan was still alive at some point. I did have my suspicions, yeah. Yeah, because I mean he's a mystery writer. He comes up with these kinds of plots and things like that and so you just kind of figure he is um yeah, he's got something going on because that can't be really exactly what happened um and so that's kind of a lovely way to play with with expectations too i even had this suspicion at some point that the notebook that he wrote in after learning that he was about to die from morphine poisoning oh that would make a great idea for novel so it's it's this and this and this and so i thought that notebook was going to pop up because he had scribbled some notes about it in in that scene but it never did so uh just a great example of setting things up but only some of them paying off and some of them just sort of being like a, uh, a bait. Like, yeah. uh, we want you to think about this, but really the focus was on this. When one of the, in, in our Looper episode, I talked about how a lot of times Ryan Johnson will will write these scenes in or these moments in a film where when you're viewing them at the first time, you may just kind of overlook them or read them, interpret them one way. And then when you see it again with a, with a better understanding of the plot, you actually see what's going on. And so that happened in this movie. I think when ransom is sitting in there during the will reading. And as soon as the will is read, he just gets this, he gets this big old smirk and starts laughing. (laughs) And so the first time seeing that, I, you know, I think he just kind of assume, Oh, well that's because he thinks it's funny that they're, you know, now getting stiffed too. Right. Because that's the kind of person he is. And so then when you watch it a second time, or if you think back to that scene later or whatever, you realize he's actually smiling because he already knew that. Um, it's revealed later that, that he had already had a conversation with Harlan about that. And so he knew it was coming and it's just a little moment, but it makes it, 
this is the kind of movie that's fun to go back and and catch all those kinds of details that are built into the into the story. There was a there was a fun side note too about Ransom. In fact, no, I'll I'll save that for when we talk about characters. Never mind. <laughs> okay. The setup of th- there is one line in that flashback scene, I think, where we realize what actually happened to Harlan, where he says something to the effect of people not being aware of the difference between normal daggers and prop daggers or something like that. That yeah. one line, and then for that to pay off at the very end of the film when Ransom tries to kill Marta, oh, that was so delicious. I love that so much. <laughs> it's such a great... Yeah, yeah. Coming back around to details like that is so much fun, and that both times I've seen the movie that got the biggest laughs in uh, in theaters. <laughs> well, do you have any more like story or any of that kind of stuff to talk about before we talk about specific characters? No, let's go ahead and talk about characters. Okay, let's do it. Who do you want to start with? Uh, let's start with Ransom. Okay, and I guess if if that's a fun place to start, the fun tidbit that I had about Ransom was something I heard in an interview that Ryan Johnson did. That Ransom, and this is kind of something that hit that resonated with me personally, that Ransom, the character name, actually came from a character named Ransom in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Okay. Um, Out of the Silent Planet. I thought that was so cool um, because I love those, but I love that trilogy from C.S. Lewis, and I thought it was great that that's where that character name came from. That's interesting. I mean, I'm not overly familiar with too much of C.S. Lewis outside of Narnia, but uh, yeah. that's really cool. I feel like this is such a good casting decision to have. Uh, Chris Evans play a incredibly distasteful character mm-hmm. and to play kind of the, uh, I don't know, the, I don't want to say the frat boy, but just kind of the rich boy. Right. <laughs> who's the snot in the family. <laughs> and he is just able to, he exudes that so, so well, so perfectly. I love the way his character sort of waltzes in immediately. And there's another one of those little setups where it's like the dogs don't bark at you. Unless, you know, if they trust you or if you're a good person or something like that, it looks a good judge of character. Uh And so the first thing we see is when he pulls up, (laughs) that the dogs start attacking him, basically. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if I thought about that. (laughs) He, the the twist in his character from him being, like, the douchebag of the family, only for then you to realize that everybody in the family is the douchebag of the family... But then he ends up being the one that sympathizes and tries to help Marta. And then he was the one who tried to set her up in the first place. It was just like such a twisty turning kind of thing with his character. And that moment where he does try to kill Marta and you think he's done it for a second. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, this was a prop knife. And I wasn't smart enough to realize that. Yeah, it's a great payoff, especially after being on that ride of seeing the ups and downs of his character. Yeah. (laughs) And the... I, I, there's already been much made. I'm proud of myself that I've seen this movie for a while now, a couple of times, and I've still not bought any sweaters. Um, I don't know if I should be proud of myself, though. I feel like I want sweaters. Right. <laughs> but yeah, that sweater he's wearing is fantastic. And just, I, I don't know, there's something about that sweater that also makes the character. Right. It's more than there's just a cool sweater, but it's it 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 just fits. Like, there's something that's just completely so intricate in the way it's woven and everything. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't normally see, you don't normally see sweaters like that. And so, of course, this very ostentatious character is going to have some sort of costuming like that. So I love how that kind of makes the character, too. And I feel like, really, the costuming does... I mean, we we learn something about each of the characters through something about their costuming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of... I mean, Benoit Blanc, he... As I mentioned, he's sort of just, like, 
dropped out of the 50s, uh, a 50s detective movie and put in the 21st century. His, his whole demeanor, the fact that he's smoking cigars, he's got this tweed suit. He's just like this standout character from the rest of the family. I, I don't know. I, I just felt that he was sort of out of place, but he just also fit in so well in the atmosphere of the film, at least. And the way he's introduced is fantastic, too. Yeah. Just kind of sitting in the corner peering. <laughs> right. The piano plunk. Yeah, and then finally there's, I, I think it's uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Linda, who finally acknowledges him. Mm-hmm. Who the hell are you? Or who the yeah. hell is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe, no, maybe it's Tony Collette's character. I can't, Joni, I can't it's remember. It's definitely one of those two. But yeah. I think, I don't know, who the hell are you? That does sound more like a Joni line. Yeah. <laughs> what I liked about Benoit is that he never, I never really got the sense that he was trying to be the smartest guy in the room even though he ended up being that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, for so much of the movie, we're with Marta and following her story along. You know, we we think, oh man, she's just really lucky that he seems to not be suspicious of her when in reality, he reveals that he knew that she at least had something to do with the death since the moment he saw her. Uh, And that's another funny thing that Johnson does. He teases us with that shot of the speck of blood on Marta's shoe accompanied by this huge dramatic swell of music. And we're thinking the whole movie, oh no, When's he going to discover the speck of blood? When's it going to be dramatically revealed that she's the one who was present for him killing himself? Only for it to be like a throwaway line by Blanco. Oh, yeah, I knew that was there the whole time. That's that's how I knew that yeah. uh, I needed to stick by you. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a funny... It's Again, it's one of those baits that I was talking about where you, you stick to that like... Oh man, that's got to be significant. And then it kind of was, but not in the way you expected it to be. <laughs> I do like what you mentioned about him not having to. He doesn't feel like he has to be the smartest person in the room, and his he sort of gets a Watson mm-hmm. in in the form of Marta, which I feel like is a is a nice kind of twist on things too, where the person who's helping you is actually someone who is wrapped up in all of this, mm-hmm. and that being a very deliberate choice on his part, considering he knew it was her all along. But I also just kind of like his. I don't know. I like his gentlemanliness, mm-hmm. <laughs> this demeanor that he has where he, even when he's with the grandmother, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's just willing to sit there and he does like this Mr. Rogers sort of things of, I just enjoy being in your company. Right. He, he's the one, I, I believe I'm correct in assuming that I'm the first who could console you in the death of your son. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's nice. <laughs> it's really sweet. And he's the only yeah. one who takes her seriously too. Everybody else is either like yelling in her ear because they assume she's deaf and unaware of things or just sort of ignoring her because she's so old that it doesn't matter anyways. Yeah. Now, Marta, we hear so many times throughout the film, she's a character with a good heart. She's got a good heart. She wears it on her sleeve. I mean, it doesn't get more plain than the fact that she vomits at even the thought of telling a lie. And I love that. What would you call that? It's a a mechanism, a trope. It's just such a a funny way of... It's it's a setup and payoff is what it is because they set it up as she is incapable of lying without getting sick. And so it's tested at the mansion. It's tested at the diner with Ransom. And it it fails her every time when she's trying to hide something. But yeah. for Ransom to manipulate that into framing her for murder and then for her to manipulate him in turn by lying about Fran surviving, holding in the sickness long enough for Ransom to confess to Fran's murder. Man, that was really satisfying, too, especially because she got to vomit in his face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's such an interesting thing, too, because I feel like the throwing up when you lie is something that is so outlandish. I apologize if anybody's listening actually does that. Mm-hmm. It's just I've never heard of it. I'm sure somebody I'm sure that is a thing. 
I've just never heard of it, but it feels like something that in the hands of other directors or in other movies would just be so outlandish. Right. Um, and would just kind of, I don't know, devolve into just body humor more often than not. And here it's used just enough. And, and again, like that, the way it plays out in the end when she throws, <laughs> when she throws up on ransom is just so <laughs> perfect. It is, it it's amazing. And I love that it's in there. And, and the, the realization that you have along with everybody else that because she threw up, Oh no, that means yeah. <laughs> that she, she yep. was lying just a second ago. And it, it's another just delicious moment from the film. And I love that she is, yeah, she is the, the most, or at least I think, I know I've seen some arguments with people having conversations about whether she is genuinely as, as just wholly good as, as it appears or whatever, or whether she's ultimately kind of exacting vengeance at the end or whatnot. But that's not really how I interpret her character. I do see her as genuinely a, a kind, good-hearted person, even as evidenced by the fact that she, you know, she tells her, her, um, her one friend in the family, Catherine Langford's character, Meg, that she's still going to take care of her after all of this is over, take care of her school and, and all of that. I, I, I do think that's interesting that people are arguing to the opposite. I, I definitely don't sense any sort of like vindictiveness, I think. And we can talk about Harlan in a second, too, because she was there for revealing or understanding what kind of people all these, all the thrombies are in reality. So she knows that. All of them are pretty much terrible people and not that they're deserving or of getting nothing, but she was present for Harlan's sort of interpretation of by releasing the family from my shadow, basically, and the promise of this great fortune that they're going to inherit. I'm setting them free to do their own thing and to be profitable for themselves. And yeah. so I, I saw her as just being respectful of that vision since she was aware of the goings on anyways. Yep. Especially after she was manipulated so cruelly by members of the family. Everybody turns against her. They, they kept talking about how she was a sweet girl. She's really part of the family. And then the moment where she's revealed to be the, the sole recipient of his fortune and home and everything, they, they turn on her like that. And it, it's nasty. Yeah, absolutely painful to watch. So I wouldn't give him anything either. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now, what do you have thoughts about Harlan? Because like I said, I really enjoyed Christopher Plummer in this movie. He wasn't in it a whole lot, but you know, there's some actors who, when they get really, really old, they just become wooden and they're only in things because it's them. I didn't get the sense of that with Christopher Plummer here. I got the sense of this like energy and mischievousness, and I, I really liked him in this. That playfulness, the, I feel like that scene of, of Harlan and, and Marta playing Go uh -huh. was, was exactly one of those fun things where they're kind of, oh, what's the word? They're, I mean, they're joking with one another and just kind of, um, I don't know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, sort of mean, playful jokes, um, if you will, about like, I'm going to beat you this time or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that really gives his character, just in that scene, like that gives his character so much personality and makes him really feel like, I don't like a human. So many times the person who is murdered in, in, in these whodunits is, is not really a character and not really a person, almost even they're just a plot device. But like I felt genuine emotion when he died in this movie, especially mm -hmm. because of the way it played out. And I think Plummer, Plummer did a very good job. Just um, We got to see two sides of him. We got to see the side that where he, he was a very loving character, but we got to see the side of him that was kind of doling out tough love or whatever you want to call it with mm -hmm. his family. But genuinely trying to do things, not only for their, I mean, ultimately for their own good, but also just things that needed to be done because they were terrible people. Right. 
And then also just being very, very sweet and kind and tender and loving and protecting Marta and protecting. He's the only one who cares about her family. Right. Um, and doesn't weaponize that. I mean, that's kind of the reason he comes up with this whole plot in the first place is because her family will be, you know, she could theoretically, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but she could like possibly get out of with some sort of minor jail time or prison time or something like that because of accidental manslaughter, Mm -hmm. but her family would be discovered. And so that's kind of like the turning point for Harlan where he's like, no, we have to cover this up because you can't lose your family like this. He really is just as generous and kind hearted as Marta is, which is why her being the sort of heiress makes so much sense. I kept thinking throughout the film, like Frank Oz's character said he got this updated will a week before his death. And so he had already planned for all of this to happen anyways. And him dying was just an unfortunate accident. Well, not an accident so much, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And so for him to have set this in motion a week before he died, knowing the the rift it would cause in the family, knowing how they would behave, how would they react, but knowing that Marta is still an ultimate good person and that she was around taking care of him selflessly without the promise of an inheritance at the end of it. It just makes all the sense in the world that this generous, kind-hearted man would give his money and fortune to this generous, kind-hearted woman yeah. who took care of him. I got to mention too, because he's not a character to really talk about, I don't think, but, but Frank Oz being in in here as the executor of the will, uh, I thought was just so fantastic because Frank Oz obviously is the voice of Yoda. Mm -hmm. And so there's a great Star Wars connection there. (laughs) Um, And I just, I love when that happens. Ryan Johnson seems to be the kind of filmmaker who, when he latches on to certain, certain actors, they tend to want to travel with them and he wants to travel with them, which probably says something about what it's like to work on a film with him. But I thought that was a nice touch. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a voice cameo. So, Oh, does he really? Yeah. Uh, at least Wikipedia says that he was Detective Hard Rock, a voice cameo. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. So, I'm going to gonna have to try to listen to that next time I see it. And watching this movie, I was also like, oh, M.M. at Walsh is still alive? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he's just one of those character actors who seems to have been around forever. Yeah. Yep. Are there any other characters you want to like dive deep on? I don't have necessarily a whole lot to say about anybody except to point out their <laughs> awful travesties <laughs> towards each other and other people. I was surprised by how much I liked Don, the way Don Johnson played this character of Richard being, again, and like you said, another, I mean, at this point, you're just going through and you're picking out faults. Mm-hmm. But I just really liked how he embodies this sort of, I don't know, upper class person who has enough money and enough privilege to be able to supposedly be beyond beyond criticism so like there's that great line of him seeing hamilton uh, him saying that he's seen hamilton oh yeah like every other rich white person or something like immigrants we get the job done yeah exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) i thought he just did such a good job with with that role i would say that all these people even though they're awful people i liked those actors and actresses in the role yeah um and i mean richard for sure Don Johnson is great as that sort of like likable douchebag, I guess. Yeah, and there's the scene where he, I he yeah he just does this so he talks about going to see Hamilton, and then when they start talking about immigrants or something like that, he's the one who calls Marta in and is just just socially inept like ridiculous way, and then like actually pulls her in mm-hmm. when he starts talking about how they you know they came in the right way and and all of this stuff. I feel like those family interactions with some of the characters that maybe don't get as much screen time felt so good because I feel like we've all been in 
family conversations that have had tinges of things that were said in in this movie if not the exact things that were said yeah so i yeah i know like like maybe some people didn't (laughs) like the the overt sort of like political talk that was in there but i love that because that's exactly what happens when families get together most of the time i mean goodness gracious you know i was seeing this movie around two holidays in between two holidays or around two hol- two major holidays so you know stuff like that's gonna be happening right that just rang very true to me and then i gotta mention Joni uh tony collette uh, <laughs> tony collette's so great but i just my favorite i read a tweet about a new yorker article about you <laughs> you're famous <laughs> and, and then um and then playing off of that again with uh jamie lee curtis's character linda when she's like i read a new art new yorker article about you <laughs> i just thought that was so funny one of my favorite running jokes in the whole film was the misnaming of where marta came from because ultimately these people don't care she's just the immigrant right but that got a laugh from everybody in my theater every single time. It was Ecuador. It was Paraguay. Yeah. It was this. It was this. But who knows what it actually was? I don't. Do we find out, or is it said by Harlan? Maybe at some point. I think it is at some point. But yeah, it, so many, so many countries are bantered about. Yeah, and then yeah, I, f- I do feel like Catherine Langford's character Meg is is interesting because she is the one who's got the university e- education, or as as Joni's character says, the woke liberal education or of, you know, crypto Marxist right. <laughs> education. <laughs> But it is interesting because she's the character who should presumably, this is a movie when it explores kind of prejudices and stuff like that, that that we, that we all have that we're unaware of or ignore Mm -hmm. or pretend like we're immune from. It doesn't really let anybody off the hook. And so Catherine Langsford's character is just, you know, just because you're college educated and you're, you've got a degree in sort of the right thing, um, doesn't let you off the hook either. I mean, she ends up turning on her friend and caving to family pressure, even though I feel like she, to me, she was. I felt a little bit more sympathy for her because she's got the entire family standing there in the room kind of forcing her to have this conversation. Right. And she also wasn't aware of her mother's cheating yeah. of Car- of Harlan, the, the, the double dipping in the college fund. Yeah. And so here she was about to have this college education taken away from her because of her mother's actions. And so she clung to whatever desperate thing she could, which was pleasing the family and trying to get the money back on the family side. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. What did you think about Lakeith Stanfeld and uh, Noah Segan? Who's, Noah Segan's been in everything. <laughs> Ryan Johnson stuff. <laughs> Noah Segan, especially, was really, really funny. He's the one who was like the fanboy of Harlan's stuff, right? Yeah. 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 He was, he was really funny. Lakeith, I don't know if I know him from something else at all, but he made me laugh in how he was sort of disbelieving of Benoit or that he he sympathized with the family knowing yeah like this guy's weird but he's here because he's here I guess and so we're we're just sort of humoring this guy is sort of the the opinion I got from him for most of the film and then it was the latter part of the film where he started to sort of see that Blanc was everything that he was supposed to be yeah it's nice to have the straight man who's just like come on what are you up to like Right, but yeah, it was he. He was it wasn't to the point of being an antagonist, um, because I feel like we have that trope a lot in um, mm-hmm. in whodunits where you've got the uh, you know the brilliant sleuth and then the person who just thinks they're they're blowing everything out of proportion and wants to wrap it up. I mean, Lieutenant Elliot does want to do that to a certain point, but he's I don't know he's much more obliging and courteous. I feel like than a lot of characters with his kind of role are. Any other characters you wanted to talk about? I don't think so, man. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> How do you stop talking about characters with a cast like this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, let's talk about the music a little bit. Now, for Cinescope today, we don't always have as much music discussion uh, just because it's a new film. Yeah. But if you, if you have a lot to say, I'd love to hear what you have to say about Nathan Johnson's score. Yeah, I'll just say I really liked this as a score from Nathan Johnson because it's really different from anything he's done. Um, like mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier, it's more orchestral, and we don't mm-hmm. see him. We talked with the Looper episode about how he played with found sound a lot. Um, he did that in Looper. He did that in Brick. And then with the Brothers Bloom, it was a bit more of a sentimental sort of score and romantic score almost. So you got a lot more piano stuff. But getting this these kind of orchestral pieces in here, I thought was really was just really nice. And there are so many. I feel like it's very string heavy. Mm-hmm. And so there are times where the strings are kind of making everything feel like they're unra- the, everything's unraveling, and and it matches with the action of the score very well. I feel like um, you get this kind of sort of frantic string work. And then in um, what is it? It's the I think it's in the I think it's in the will, which is where they reprise the Knives Out main theme, but mm-hmm. you get it with a full orchestra instead of how you get it at the very beginning. And the, I think they're doing like some pizzicato, um, mm-hmm. which just makes it feel really frenetic. And uh, I really liked that. But then you do get those quieter pieces like the Thromby family theme is a really good one because it's a it's just a piano, a solo piano piece. And it's very haunting. It's almost like it wants to feel romantic, sort of like the the Brothers Bloom. But there's there's kind of evil that is lurking under the surface and kind of embodies who the Thromby family is. I really like your insight into that stuff. I, I've only been with the film and with the score a couple of days and so I, I don't have a whole lot of like insight into things but um just to for for everyone out there pizzicato in strings is when you pluck instead of use a bow and so it's that percussive kind of stuff like if you've watched uh raiders of the lost ark which i hope you have uh it's the the sound that john williams uses to illustrate spiders crawling on their backs it's the the, the kind of creepy crawly and so you do get a sense of that a little bit too uh where i mean there's not creepy crawlies here but you got some kind of creepy crawly people who maybe have done some sinister things yeah so I, I like the chamber quality of the orchestra. I, I love the fact that it is an orchestra, that it's mostly strings. I, I think that for a quieter film, quote, quieter film like this, where you don't have all this bombastic stuff, it's nice to get away from the big brassy sounds and the weird, weird stuff every once in a while. And this is just music. And so the music itself is used to great effect to heighten emotion, to to bring out tension, to bring out those more tender moments. I wrote down a few tracks. I, I've listened... I was listening at work today and I was listening while I was typing my notes. And so I was just writing them down as I went. Uh, Harlan's plan is great. Uh, The wake knives out part two, the will, which is what you just mentioned. Uh, The dumbest car chase of all time. (laughs) And uh, also no more surprises. And I mean, pretty much all the tracks are really, really good because, because it's less of a sound uh, ambiance kind of score it's it's and it's more just music and like actual music which you don't always get from a lot of films these days it's really pleasant to listen to separate from the film too it really is i think this is the score that really convinced me that i want to see nathan johnson work with ryan johnson on future star wars stuff oh yeah because it's the first time he's been able to showcase some more orchestral stuff and uh, i would love to see it i would too going on to our final section of the episode let's talk about some maybe some themes or some relevance or things that you took away from this movie anything that stands out to you yeah i i think the i like the way that this film um not only champions the the innocent and the pure of heart but champions i mean and champions the underdog and the person that no one would suspect 
And so the money shot, I think, in in the film is the final shot where Marta is now on, you know, on top of the, the deck of the house uh, holding holding Harlan's coffee cup and looking down on all of the Thromby family and they're looking up at her and there's that shot reverse shot. I think that's the payoff because, you know, well, 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 how the turntables. <laughs> and she's holding that mug, the My House, My yeah, Rules mug. Exactly. But I just, I, I find that to be incredibly, like, rewarding and delightful and earnest. And again, that there's not this... This is why I don't read Marta's character as someone who is vindictive, because she's not she's not striking a pose, really, or anything. I mean, there's obviously irony in her holding that mug. Um, but right. that kind of comes from the film grammar more than her character. She's not, like, striking a pose. She's not... I don't know. She's not wearing one of their dresses or something like that. Um, she's just kind of in her sweater watching everybody go out. And so I really love that. And again, I love how the to take a movie like this and then actually look at... How social class um, can play into a whodunit is something that I don't, I can't recall seeing a lot in in whodunit films. In that respect, sort of reminds me of Parasite from Bong Joon Ho that came out this year mm-hmm. or last year, where that was also a commentary on sort of class and uh, the way different classes view each other and how they treat each other and stuff like that. And you definitely get some of that territory tread in that in this film, where they they. Think of Marta as just the sweet girl, the person who's taking care of granddad, and they, they don't have much to say about her other than that. Uh, they, they promise, oh, we're going to take care of you, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, because you obviously can't do it for yourself. We have the money, you don't. Yeah. And you see what happens when that is taken away from you. Um, right. So it could even go back to something we talked about with Looper, kind of a similar theme, where if you put your identity in if you inv- i think you were saying this if you invest your oh, identity yeah. in one thing too heavily or something like that and then that is taken away from you we see who you really are and we definitely see it with the thromby family so yeah I-, I like that and i thought it was a really interesting exploration of family and what we owe to them i mean obviously i love my family and i i don't have any fortune to bestow upon them or take away from them but uh i mean if your family is trashed you if your family treats you poorly if your family takes advantage of you then why should they be recipients of your generosity you know and not just family it could be anybody insert blank here fill in the blank here you know uh it could be anybody who treats you poorly they they if they aren't deserving of the the good you can give to them you don't have to be nasty back to them you just don't have to continue to be good to them and that's sort of what harlan does here yeah everybody in this family is selfish and mean-spirited and for a while you think even you think linda might be like the exception uh the oldest daughter she built herself from the ground but then you realize she got a million dollar or however much it was loan from her father to start this business in the first place and then she thinks lesser of her siblings and the children because of this and that and so she's just as guilty as everybody else of putting herself first and she even makes that comment about oh the business is mine it's not my husband's i'm the one who blah 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 so (laughs) nobody in this family is innocent of being an awful person in some respect yeah and so None of them are deserving of good guy Harlan's who genuinely built his fortune from the ground up generosity. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't have any other major takeaways, at least not of this moment. I see it a couple more times and we'll see what happens. But yeah. <laughs> do you have anything else? I will say that one of my favorite, we talked a little bit about the kind of expectation that we had that was sort of set up with maybe, maybe Harlan is not dead. Maybe he's, you know, just pulling some elaborate scheme. Um, and there, there's a line I can't remember exactly where it comes from, but something about Harlan like to, I think it may be 
Linda who says that. Yeah, I think it is Linda who says that in her first mm-hmm. interview. Jamie Lee Curtis's character, she says Harlan liked to play games, and you kind of had to learn the games that he liked to play in order to speak his language and get along with him. Right. And so that's one of those things that's put in there that kind of is a. It's almost like a red herring. It sets up, or you think it's a red herring, because it's it's playing with us, making us think, okay, well maybe this is one of his games, but it comes back around at the end because we found out that they used to. He and Linda used to swap letters in invisible ink using invisible ink. And so she finds that letter at the end, the one that Richard thought was blank and it's not blank. It was just, it was written in invisible ink. So she finds out about the affair and then you don't actually see the punch, but he has a black eye at the, at the very right. end, which is so fantastic. That, that face turned, he goes from profile to straightforward and you see, oh, yeah. that's so good. That's just so fantastic. And that's another, that's another pit that got a lot of laughs every single yeah. time. So I love that. Yeah, that's another delicious moment, even though it does come at, well, I mean, it comes at Richard's expense and we're not necessarily the biggest Linda fans at the end of the film, but you are kind of glad that Richard gets his comeuppance. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's so much you could say about this movie and I had so much fun with it. Do you have any just sort of general closing thoughts about it? I don't think so, other than it's a film that I see myself revisiting time and time again throughout the years and I can't wait. And I am, I'm hoping that the home release will come packed full of of special features. I guess one thing I will mention is that I follow Steve Yedlin, the cameraman uh-huh. that has worked with Johnson on pretty much everything on Twitter. And they kind of did some behind the scenes stuff where they, someone actually created like these essentially not paper, but they like rendered actual like house windows and things you would normally see in a house, bookcases, things like that. And would hold them in front of the actors like Linda who had glasses. So that mm-hmm. that would be reflected in their glasses and it would, it would look the way it's supposed to. And I just find that to be a great detail. And and the house is such a character in this film. That's another thing. I I love when movies, I tend to really gravitate towards movies where the location and the setting is a character as much as anything else. So if you like off the top of my head, like something like uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria or 12 Angry Men, things like that, where you really get to know a a place in the course Mm -hmm. of a movie. I love that. And so I just hope that this, the home release is just packed full of, of special features that will help us explore this, this world even more. There's a lot of times when a movie comes out on home release that I think, okay, I can wait until Christmas to get that one. (laughs) But there's some that I'm like, oh, I have to get this the day it comes out. It has to be on 4K. I have to sit there and watch all the special features in one go. (laughs) I think this is definitely one of those movies. (laughs) And so you're, uh, I'm assuming you're as amped as I am about the potential of a sequel. Oh, I am so amped. Detective, whodunit stuff, mystery, making myself think about or like trying to solve the crime you know all that stuff is so much fun and so if somebody like ryan johnson who has just proven that he can do it really really well comes into the picture and continues to do more uh while hopefully still doing other things too (laughs) i would love it yeah very much and i feel like it's just such a great sandbox for him to play in there's Mm -hmm. you know that throwaway line about him already being famous from another case um so this is a movie that could go backwards in time go forwards in time another ensemble cast a small i mean the the possibilities are limitless but i mean we know we can assume from what we know of ryan johnson of the work he's not just gonna hit the repeat button he's going to come up with something equally clever and exciting and fun and i cannot wait for that 
Right. I mean, the thing that you would get from a sequel would probably be more on Blanc's character because this movie didn't really explore him as a person much. Yeah. We just got to see sort of his process and how he comes to a conclusion at the end. Yep. But we, we don't know much about Blanc the person. So it would be really interesting to get a sequel where we explore more about him, maybe something tied more closely with him and uh, then see him do the same thing again. Yeah. And one last thing I wanted to mention, because I, I wrote a note about it as I was walking out of the theater, I loved the Clue-like character cards that you get in the end credits. Oh, like, yeah. You, that is so great. I, I don't know if Clue borrowed that from somebody else. I kind of think they wouldn't because it's based off a board game and you've got the cards there. But I, I loved that, that, that small Clue detail, because Clue is one of my favorites as well. Yeah, <laughs> that was great touch. So... If that is it, then that is the end of the sixth episode of Cinescope Today. Thanks again, Blaine, for joining me. Thanks again for having me back on. We will be bringing Cinescope Today back, hopefully just as often as we'll be having the main show going. So hopefully there'll be weekly installments of both. We'll sort of see going forward. But in any case, it's definitely not going away for a long time. So uh, contact for this show is the same as for Main Cinescope. That's facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please, again, continue going over to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating. Drop us a review if you really love us. And then hit that subscribe button and that'll help us gain some visibility. And if you have feedback or ideas, there's those social media mentioned before. But there's also our email address, which is the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. And Blaine, how about you remind us one more time where we can find you and your work on the internet? You can find my podcast that I co-host with Josh Crabb, a Star Wars podcast at Home One Radio. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find me on Twitter at Home One Blaine. So that's where you can find my stuff. Awesome. The best place to find my personal stuff is also on Twitter, like always on Twitter. Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. There's Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins if you want to follow my lack of updates there. And then there is my office podcast, which is finished now, but there's the archive still available. It's called An American Workplace, and you can find that where podcasts can be found and at WorkplacePodcast.com. And if you miss any of that, need to see it in writing, you can go to the website. Uh, that is thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's it for this episode. I had a lot of fun talking Ryan Johnson twice this week with Blaine. I feel very lucky. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking forward to the next time we get to do it. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies. This is actually a movie that she's mentioned to me of having an interest in, but she reads exclusively mystery books. Like that's all she does uh, as far as her reading interests go. So uh, I think she would love it because it's not overly like raunchy or anything either. It's not like it's a very palatable movie by a whole bunch of different people. I seriously think I'm going to call it my grandma and say, hey, what are you doing Friday night (laughs) or something Sunday, maybe after church? Who knows?